Leviticus chapter 4. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord and shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the, its fat from it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. He shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Then he is to bring out the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader 
sins and unintentionally does any one of all the things which the Lord his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. All its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus, shall the, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Now, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and shall put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven." But if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it, a female without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they slay the burnt offering. The priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar of the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Now, it was said by the Scottish minister Andrew Bonar that the first three chapters of Leviticus or in substance like the first chapter of the first epistle of John. He says, We have been shown in type the eternal life which was manifested to us in Christ, the great atonement. Next we were shown that the Lord had a claim on all that is ours, and therefore we must give up ourselves and all that is ours to Him. This done, we walk in fellowship with Him. These things have been written to us in the first three chapters to the end that we sin not, that we may not live like the dark world around us, but may be drawn to him who draws us with his cords of love. Now, in recent weeks, as we've been considering uh, these first three chapters of Leviticus, we've seen they describe an ideal worship scenario. Prior to chapter 4, there was no explicit mention of sin in regard to the sacrifices and offerings. The closest uh, that we got to a mention of sin was chapter 1, verse 4, where it is said that the burnt offering will be accepted for him to make an atonement on his behalf. 
And certainly burnt offerings could be offered in regard to sin, but they need not necessarily be offered in regard to sin. They could be simply offered as a joyous sacrifice to the Lord, as was described in Psalm 51, 18 and 19, where David says, By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. And similarly, the grain offerings of chapter 2 and the peace offerings of chapter 3 were offerings that could be offered freely in joyful worship. Grain offerings with their salt reminded the Israelites of the the salt of the covenant of their God, which signified the perpetuity, the lasting nature of the covenant. And the peace offerings provided for both horizontal fellowship with man in that the, the priest and the worshipers partook of the sacrifice and also for vertical fellowship with God as the fat was offered up in smoke on the altar as a soothing aroma before the Lord. And these were good and wonderful things. These were God's ordained means in the Mosaic Covenant for walking in fellowship with God, for walking in the light as he is in the light. But just as the book of 1 John does indeed turn to the issue of sin, as you get on down later in chapter 1 and and the opening verses of chapter 2 where John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John eventually turns from walking in the fellowship with the light to what about sin? And so it is here in Leviticus 4 that we come to the issue of sacrifice for sin. And now we have here in chapter 4, four different scenarios or four different particular situations in which a sin is committed and a sacrifice for that prescribed. We have first the situation of the anointed priest sinning unintentionally and bringing guilt on the people, the sacrifice that is required for that in verses 1 through 12. Secondly, you have the situation of the whole congregation of Israel committing error and then the sacrifice required for them in verses 13 through 21. Thirdly, we have the situation of a leader, a civil leader of the people, perhaps a tribal leader or something of that nature, sinning and then the sacrifice required for him, verses 22 through 26. And then fourthly, we have one of the common people sinning. And their offering could take one of two shapes. Either the offering uh, could be a female goat, as described in verses 27 through 31, or it could be an offering of a female lamb for the same person in that situation, described in verses 32 to 35. In each of these sacrifices, there's similarities and there's, there's differences. In each of the sacrifices, the animal was to be slain at the doorway of the tent of meeting, the same place at which the burnt offerings were slain. In each case, a hand was to be laid on the head of the animal. Or, in case of the congregation, obviously you can't get the entire congregation of Israel around there to lay their hands all collectively on the head of one bull. And so the elders of Israel were to lay their hands on the head of the animal, as described in verse 15. In each of the sacrifices, each of these four scenarios described here, the fat was to be removed from the animal and then offered up in smoke on the altar, just as was done with the peace offerings in chapter 3. And you see uh, in the chapter explicit references hearkening back to the peace offerings, verse 10, verse 26, 
verse 31, verse 35, all have explicit references hearkening back to the way things were done under the peace offerings, offering up fat on the altar, do the same thing here in this case. But there are differences also among these four kinds of sin offering. For one, there is a difference in the value of the sacrifice that is required. In the case of the anointed priest sinning, verses 1 through 12, or the case of the whole congregation sinning, verses 13 through 21, a bull is required. No, no substitutes offered, just a bull is required. In the case of the leader, verses 22 to 26, this is a male goat. Uh, that's the sacrifice that is required. And then in the case of the common person, uh, described there at the, the end of the chapter, the offering for the sacrifice could be either female goat or a female lamb. In short, the more egregious the sin, the more expensive the sacrifice. And in the particular cases which are in view here, the egregious nature of the sin has to do with who it was that was committing it. The anointed priest sinning and bringing guilt on the people and the entire congregation sinning were the most egregious of the cases in view here and therefore required the more costly sacrifice. And we also find something of the egregious nature of the sins involved in those first two cases, the case of the anointed priest or the case of the entire congregation sinning, in some of the details of the sacrificial ritual. And so, for instance, in verse 6, we find that in the case of the anointed priest who sinned, he was to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And so he was to sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord before the veil, that is to say, before the veil that leads into the Holy of Holies. So in other words, he is inside the tabernacle at the doorway of the Holy of Holies and is to sprinkle that blood seven times. And then according to verse 7, he was to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which was before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And the same requirements were also in place in regard to the bull that's offered for the entire congregation. That's what you find in verses 17 and 18. And also, in the case of the sacrifice for the priest and in the case of the sacrifice for the entire congregation, after the blood had been sprinkled and placed on the horns of the altar and the, the rest of the blood had been poured out and the fat had been burned, the rest of the bull was to be taken outside the camp and burned. You find those explicit instructions about taking the rest of the animal outside the camp and burning it in verses 11 and 12 for the priest, verse 21 for uh, the entire congregation. And so note the differences then from that on the one hand, the case of the anointed priest, the case of the congregation, then from the sins of a leader or the sins of one of the common people. And the sacrificial ritual that's laid out for the leader in verses 22 to 26, and that for a common individual, verses 27 to 35, there is no word at all about sprinkling the blood seven times before the veil. Also, the blood that was to be put on the horns of the altar for these latter two sacrifices, that is for the leader and for the common person, the blood there was not to be placed on the horns of the altar of incense inside the tabernacle, as was the case for the priest and the congregation. Rather, they were to be placed on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. And as verse 19 uh, 
tells us, or I guess rather, rather verse 18 tells us, the altar of burnt offering is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And so in these latter two cases about the leader sinning or one of the common people sinning, the blood is put on the altar of burnt offering at the doorway of the tent of meeting instead of the altar of incense, which is inside the tabernacle. And so it seems that the location where the blood was placed on the horns of the altar and the fact that in those first two cases blood was to be sprinkled in front of the veil leading into the Holy of Holies, that that signified something in relation to the seriousness of the sin involved. And so the differences in the ritual between what you see in the case of the the priest and the congregation on the one hand versus the leader and the common man on the other hand seem to indicate that the sins of the priest and of the congregation were were more egregious in their nature. In those cases, the sacrifices were more costly. In those cases, blood had to be sprinkled in front of the veil. In those cases, blood had to be placed on the horns of the altar, which was actually inside the tabernacle, not merely at the one which was at the doorway to the tabernacle. Now, why does all this matter? Right? We, we don't do that anymore. We don't have to do that anymore. These things have passed away. Why does this matter? Well, we're reminded by this that though every sin in and of itself is damnable, all sins are not equal. And this is why Jesus can speak in John nineteen eleven of someone having a greater sin. This is why Jesus can speak in places like Matthew 10, 14, and 15, Matthew 11, 21 through 24, of how the judgment coming on Sodom and Gomorrah would be more bearable than it would be for those cities which had rejected the preaching of either Christ's apostles or had refused to believe in Jesus after they saw his miracles. The judgment, Jesus said, that was coming on the towns such as Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum would be worse, and the reason, it, the reason that judgment would be worse was because they had a greater accountability than Sodom and Gomorrah had. They had seen greater miracles, they had heard the preaching of the Son of God, and yet had remained impenitent. Similarly, Paul makes a distinction between sexual sins and other sins in 1 Corinthians 6.18 when he says that every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And this is important for us to recognize. I think that at least sometimes there's a tendency to flatline all sins so that no sin is worse than any other, but this is not borne out, actually, by the biblical text. I think we have warrantable evidence here from Leviticus. I think if you look in the book of Ezekiel, you see it there. You see it on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 18 and so forth. And Christians have historically recognized these distinctions. Westminster Catechism, or excuse me, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 151, asks the question, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? And the answer uh, rather lengthy, but uh, the answer is sin has sins receive their aggravation, and I'll, I'll abbreviate what they say, but sins receive their aggravation, number one, from the person's offending. I think we see that here in Leviticus chapter 4. Right? The person's offending in these greater cases, one, the anointed priest, bringing guilt on the entire congregation of Israel, that's a big deal. Number two, you have the entire congregation sinning, that's a big deal as opposed to, on the other hand, a, a tribal leader. Still a big deal, but not, not quite the same level. 
or one of the common persons. Still a big deal, but not quite at the other level. And the second uh, reason that the Westminster Larger Catechism gives for sin receiving its aggravation is from the parties offended. If it's a directly a sin against God versus a sin that's primarily directed against man and so forth. Um, thirdly, from the nature and quality of the offense. Fourthly, from the circumstances of time and place. And so there, there are some things that, that make some sins more, work, uh, more, more heinous in their nature, more egregious in their nature than others. Now, let me be clear that in making this point about a distinction among sins, I'm not suggesting that we ought to view some sins as insignificant, or that we may view any sin as being no big deal. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am saying is that we ought not to be thinking of sins in terms of large and small, but in terms of large versus extra large, or versus 2XL, if you will. And we must not minimize any sin. And in order not to minimize any sin, I think we actually need these distinctions because if we simply have a one-size-fits-all category for sin, we're actually going to be minimizing some sins that are actually worse. And so we're not, not trying to minimize any sin, but we want to recognize that some sins are actually aggravated and more egregious than others. I think common sense recognizes that all sins are not alike and the Word of God recognizes this too. And while we're here speaking of the differences in regard to sin, we ought to notice specifically in the chapter what kind of sins these offerings are for. Verse 2, we see that it is for if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. And so these are, these are sins that are committed unintentionally. A slightly different root for the word is found in verse 13 in regard to the sin of the entire congregations. The ESV translates it exactly the same as unintentional sin. Uh, New American Standard uh, renders it as commits error. It's roughly the same category of sin. The same root that was found in verse 2 shows up again in verse 22, verse 37. These are unintentional sins, sins of error, sins of ignorance, Sins of inadvertence. And what might we compare these sins to? What would be their opposite? Well, Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 31, speaks of these sins on the one hand, and then their opposite on the other hand. So why don't we flip there to Numbers 15 so that we can uh, compare the things that differ. Numbers 15, we'll look at uh, verse 22 through 31. So in Numbers 15, uh, starting verse 22, we read this. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave you commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a, uh, for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance, one male goat and one male goat for a sin offering. 
Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven. For it was an error, and they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to the people through error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among you, excuse me, him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now, one theologian expressed the difference between these two kinds of sins in this way. He said, certain sins are committed out of weakness or ignorance. Some arise from stubbornness, wantonness, intended wickedness, or hardened habit. This distinction is shown in clear language, Numbers 15, 22 to 31, Psalm 19, 12, and 13. Now, the Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, I think, had some, had some helpful things to say on this, this distinction between sins of error, inadvertence, unintentional sins on the one hand, versus intentional or hardened sins on the other hand, defiant sins. And he said this, he said, sin is either of weakness or of depravity, either wholly voluntary or relatively involuntary. In the Old Testament, sins committed through error and weakness are distinguished from those committed presumptuously. When the sinner adds evil, adds to the evil that he perpetrates, contumacy and pride, by which he sins with full consent and deliberate wickedness and glories in his sin. So, uh, so are errors and so errors and secret sins are distinguished from presumptuous sins in Psalm 19, which are sins of obstinacy and open rebellion. Paul, speaking of himself, says, The evil which I would not, that I do. But elsewhere, he speaks of those who sin willfully, Hebrews 10, 26. And so, there was no atonement, as Numbers 15 makes clear, no atonement for the sin that was committed presumptuously or with a high hand. But there were sacrifices for those which were committed unintentionally. Now, I realize at this point, those among us who have a tender conscience might be getting a little bit nervous. You might be thinking, I sinned. I knew it was a sin before I did it. And I did it anyways. I think all of us have. So, beloved, if that's you and that's what you're thinking, let me just say that that is not necessarily the same thing as, I think, what Numbers 15 is describing as a high-handed or defiant sin, a presumptuous sin for which no atonement could be made. Look at the sins of David. David, no doubt, 
knew the Ten Commandments, right? David committed adultery, murder, yet he was not cut off from the people of God. He was forgiven. Look at David's descendant, King Manasseh. Manasseh was a very evil king who did all kinds of wicked things. And yet, when he was taken captive and prayed to the Lord, the Lord heard his entreaty and was moved by it and was brought back to Jerusalem again, as we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And what is more, our Lord Jesus Christ says to us in Matthew 12, 31 to 32, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, and blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now the point is, if you have a tender conscience and you think you have committed a high-handed sin for which no atonement, not even the atonement of Christ, is sufficient, I doubt that you've done that, actually. Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you search throughout the scriptures, you will never find someone who desired the mercy of God and sought after God's mercy on God's terms and failed to receive it. You will, not, you will not find that. And so I think what Numbers 15 is describing is not someone who would later be broken and penitent for their sins, but someone who was shaking their fist in the face of God. And when it talks about a high-handed sin, a presumptuous sin, this is sin in the greatest and hardest degree. What we find of God's mercy is Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We find Jesus saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All of that to say, if you're worried that you have committed this kind of sin, and you're willing to come to Christ, willing to repent, willing to confess, willing to submit to him, you probably haven't committed that kind of hardened sin. And so take heart at the mercy of God that is offered to us in Christ. Now we've spent some time looking into what this passage teaches about distinctions among sins, more egregious, less egregious, unintentional versus the opposite of Numbers 15, these presumptuous sins. But before we close, we must see how this chapter points us to Christ. For one thing, this chapter does employ some rather unique vocabulary, generally speaking, in regard to the priest. Now, as a general rule, I, uh, I try to avoid uh, using Greek and Hebrew in the pulpit, but inasmuch as these words are transliterated into English and we're familiar with them, I, I will uh, break from my general rule tonight. But we have this terminology applied to the priest. Um, he is specifically called the anointed priest here in and verse 3, verse 5, and I think maybe, maybe one or two other places in the chapter. And it's no, it's no secret that, of course, the priests were anointed. And I haven't obviously surveyed the entire Hebrew of the Old Testament, but it's said that this phrase, the anointed priest, ha-kohen ha-mashiach, the anointed priest, the Messiah priest, only occurs here in... Leviticus 3 and in Leviticus 6.22. The Septuagint translated uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 5 as ha-hierus ha-christos, the 
Christ priest. The point is this phrase doesn't occur very often, but it is rather striking. The Messiah priest, the Christ priest, this is pretty striking if you stop and think about it. And beloved, we too have a Messiah priest. We too have a Christ priest, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, thank God, is better than the one spoken of here. This priest could sin and bring guilt on the people. How bad is that? Jesus did not do that. Rather, what we find in Romans 5, 18 and 19, contrasting Adam and Christ as we we did this morning in Sunday school, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. These Old Testament priests could bring guilt upon their people. Christ, by his act of righteousness on the cross, brings to us righteousness and eternal life. And we find this in Hebrews 7, 26-28, that it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did that once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And in speaking of this once for all offering, of himself on the cross, it is also noteworthy how the terminology that is applied to the sacrifices here in Leviticus 4 is is mirrored and imitated in the New Testament. Now this connection is important and helpful for us to see, but it is somewhat masked, uh, and I think unfortunately so, by our English translations. In in this chapter, the word that is, is translated as sin offering it's just, it's just one word. It's not sin and offering. It's just, it's just one word. One word that in other contexts is sometimes rendered simply as sin. And so just, for instance, look at verse 3. We could potentially translate verse 3 as saying, Then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as sin for the sin which he committed. This is not to say that the offering itself is a sin or becomes sin, Obviously not. This is something that is commanded by God. The point that I'm going for is simply the way that the language is used. In this case, the word for sin is used meaning sin offering. And Paul seems to use language in the exact same way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, when he says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Certainly Paul is not suggesting that Jesus' being somehow became a sin or became sinful or something weird like that. Paul's just using language the way the Bible uses it. He's using language the way the Lord used it here in Leviticus chapter 4. To say that the Father made Jesus to be sin means that the Father made Jesus to be a sin offering so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. We receive forgiveness through Christ. And so there's a lot of good news here in Leviticus chapter 4 that points us forward to Jesus. And in closing, I would draw your attention to one more thing 
in the passage that points us forward to Christ. And it also lays an imperative, as it were, upon us. So what happened to the flesh and the hide of those bulls that were offered in the first two sacrifices? They were taken outside the camp and burned. As we saw in verses 11 and 12 and in verse 20. And this also points us to Jesus and it calls us to take up our crosses and follow him here in this world. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The burning of the bodies of those bulls outside the camp served as a figure to signify that Jesus would suffer on Golgotha, outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem. John tells us, John 19.20, that the place where they crucified him was near the city. It was near the city, not in the city. It was outside the camp where Jesus suffered. And so we then have to, to go to him outside the camp, which is to say bearing whatever reproach or ignominy or shame may come upon us. But we do this with the knowledge that being in Christ and being with Christ is worth it. Whatever, whatever it may cost us, whatever it costs to take up our cross and follow him, it's worth it because he is our Messiah priest who became sin for us so that he might sanctify us by his blood so that we might be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, it's worth it. Let's go to Jesus outside the camp. Let's take up our cross. Let's honor him who gave his all for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for these shadows of the Old Testament that point us forward to Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the truth of the New Testament, which shows us how these things were pointing forward to him and were fulfilled in him. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with with love for Jesus, for all that he has done for us. Lord, we pray that you give us a greater appreciation of the the richness of uh, the shadows of the Old Testament, which we're pointing forward uh, to him. Lord, we ask that in appreciating the shadows, we would not fall in love with them, but rather that we would love Christ, to whom they were pointing, that we would love him more and more, that we would go to him, that we would serve him, that we would bear whatever shame this world may place upon us, knowing that if we do so, that if we suffer for Christ's sake, we are blessed. And, Father, we praise you for your mercy and for your kindness to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.